I can't stand wasted lives. Like if, you know, if I had like a pet peeve in the world, I just, I just can't stand it. And, and I, don't, I don't really know how to articulate this you know, best that I was thinking about it. But you, you, just, you get the feel sometimes uh, when you deal with people that their life is just kind of grayed out, just kind of fuzzed out, you know, and that they're just, they're just, not, they're just not quite living. You know what I'm talking about? They're a little bit kind of stunted and closed and stuck and, and powerless. And, and that really, that's, that's the negative thing that motivates all the positives in my life. That's really what I, I can't stand. When, when I encounter uh, somebody like that, or if I you know, start to feel like that myself, I, I just, I feel as if it's dehumanizing. I feel as if what's happened is that you've taken a perfectly good human and turned them into some sort of existing robot. I don't, I don't know exactly, but it just it really twists my gut. And, and I think my aversion to the wasted life comes from, you know, in large part, probably my own, my own battle with it, my own battle uh, with depression, which is a very, you know, uh, personal and profound battle for me uh, in earlier years and in my life and being around so many depressed people, um, sort of where I grew up and how I grew up and stuff like that, a lot of alcoholic people, a lot of people who had no economic hope, who were also emotionally poor as a result. And, and, and there are places where you can just kind of encounter a culture of powerlessness. Maybe some of you have had experiences with those sorts of, of cultures. Uh, anyway, I can't stand it. Just can't stand it. Sure. And neither can God. We are doing a sermon series on the Bible from 30,000 feet. So we're taking a couple of months and we're going through like the whole Bible, not verse by verse. We're taking a look at it kind of chunk by chunk so that we can appreciate the whole arc of the story, not just like, you know, passages and principles, but the whole thing, because it turns out that truth is always understood best when it's understood in a whole context. When you understand the whole truth, uh, then you can understand pieces of it more profoundly. Uh, last week, we did uh, the story of Abraham. It was kind of like the first guy of faith. There was this unchanging culture that had drifted in sort of a polytheism, pantheism. They were worshiping all sorts of things. They had a memory of, of the one true God, but they just sort of, you know, drifted into this sort of spiritual fragmentation. And in the midst of that, in this sort of caste-driven, very stratified society, God called out to an individual named Abraham, and He said, I tell you what, I'll be your personal God. You be my personal person. We will change the world. I'm going to send you on a journey of faith, because faith is always a journey, and you will be um, uh, the ancestor of nations. All the people on earth will be blessed because of you if you go on a faith journey with me. That's what He said, which was an amazing prediction. Uh, because this oral tradition uh, that became the written tradition of the Bible started, you know, thousands of years ago, and it turned out that that one guy, Abraham, did kind of bless the whole world. I mean, he is, for instance, the father of at least three of the major faiths in the world, Judaism, uh, Islam, and Christianity all sort of trace their roots to this guy's journey. There's a couple billion people on earth, and really the whole earth has been conditioned. Just one of the many amazing predictions uh, in the book that we call the Bible that make it a a unique uh, document. And, uh, 
and we learned that faith is always a journey of trust. That's what turns a person into a person of faith. Well, today we're going to take a look at how, uh, how God just doesn't turn a person into a person of faith, but how God creates a people of faith, a whole people, a whole society, a faith culture, if you will. And it's the, stu- it's, it's the story of what I call the early years, the early years of the people of God. Uh, the descendants of Abraham become the people that we call the Hebrews. And what God does is that He takes this little group of people and He begins to turn them into a people of God. And it's through that people, it turns out that God would end up changing the whole world. But in the early years, what we get is the story of how God turns a people into a people of faith, as He defines it. Not a people of religion, not a people of belief, but a people of, of trust, or as I like to say, a free people who are actual humans. That's the story. Um, today's story, we're going to read how God t- took Abraham's descendant, the Hebrews, and took them out of slavery in Egypt. It involves this character named Moses, who's an interesting guy. There's stories of all these mighty miracles of deliverance. There was a period in which the people of God wander in the desert. Bible trivia, how long did that period last? Forty, you guys are so smart. Forty years. Uh, early in that time, the Lord gave uh, this people something called the law. He began to sort of put down into specific rules, uh, guidelines for them, um, and there's everything that went with it, the routines and the rituals. There was the conquest of the promised land, how this little tribe of Hebrews went back to the land that God had given to Abraham and sort of re-entered and had to drive out some of the tribes that were there who had drifted into just terrible horrendous, violent spiritual practice um, and wars uh, against them. Um, Abraham was his guy. This is the story of how God goes about developing a people. That's what the early chunk of the Bible is about. And if you remember nothing else, what I say, now you know. That big early part of the Bible, uh, those uh, famous early books. You got Genesis. We've gone through Genesis now. There's Exodus, which is the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt, the Hebrews leaving Egypt. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, which is specifically about God's rules and conditioning of the priestly class, how to lead the people spiritually. Uh, Numbers, which is mostly the story of the Hebrews wandering in the desert during the time of testing. Uh, Deuteronomy, uh, which literally means the second second speech, which is sort of a, a, a summary of Uh, the law and the speeches of Moses, so uh, uh, a summary statement, essentially. Uh, Then you get the book of of Joshua, which is Moses' protege, Joshua, leading the people into the promised land and all the wars that they had and everything they went through and what they learned. And then Judges, which is the story of, you know, after Joshua, how, you know, there was a people of faith, but they kept drifting into trouble, and God would send a hero to come along and sort of raise them back out of trouble, then they drift back into trouble again. So it's all very dramatic, filled with challenges as the people of God tried to stay the people of God, but often drifted into tar pits. So there you go, first chunk of the Bible. I just, you don't have to read the first seven books now, we did it. More than anything else, it's a story of how God frees people from slavery. And I'm not just talking about physical bondage, I'm talking about slave mentality. It's a huge 
uh, portion of the story. God's building a people, and the first thing he needs to do is he needs to get them out of slave mentality or poverty mentality, uh, you might call it. Uh, it's, the, it's the mentality of people who are powerless and stuck. It is by and large the mentality of the world around us. Remember, Abraham was in an unchanging world. There were caste systems. You were who you were born to be. Nothing ever changed for individuals. There was no concept of individuality until a personal God called to Abraham, one guy, and said, you, I will make something different of you. you know, I will actually make you a, a, a full human. So there's a contrast in the early story of the Bible between a world that doesn't change and people who do. And what happens when you put changeful people into an un unchanging uh, world. This is not a story of how God invented his religion. It's nothing to do with that, although that is often how these books are, are taught, I have found. Um, this is about releasing a people into purpose, because remember, the original call in Abraham, their forefather, was, uh, I will use you to change the world. Everyone who blesses you will be blessed. Everyone who curses you will be cursed. All people in the world will be blessed because of you. I am reclaiming humanity, Abraham, and you're going to help me with that, and your descendants will help me with that. This is Operation Restoration. That's what we're reading about. He said, God essentially says to the Hebrews uh, when he finds them in Egypt, he says, you're slaves, but I made you to be a light for the whole world an agent of blessing and of world change. So we're going to change that. We're going to change where you are. So this story is about how to free people into power and purpose. I think that's the best way to understand the story of the early years that we read in the Bible. How to free people into power and purpose. And in that sense, I'm very interested in that story because that's kind of what I like to do. I like to free people into power and purpose. I can't stand it when people feel stuck and powerless. I can't stand that. I can't stand that particular brand of pain. Neither can God. So we've got to warm up for this story. We've got to roll our shoulders. Roll our shoulders. Um, have you guys read those studies, those articles about how posture influences attitude and how attitude influences performance? Uh, uh, we had a, a big track meet this weekend in, in, in the Sang family. Uh, my little, little daughter was running, and uh, she gets a little nervous before track meets, and so sometimes what we do is we, we do posture, posture practice. We uh, go ahead and show them Supergirl stance. Come on, honey. That's not the right posture. Come on, Supergirl stance. Before a race, what do we do? Um, and so uh, what she did, is, this is like the, like the big island championships, and so what she did is she led her teammates through these stances right before the race. I saw you over there with your teammates in there, and she was explaining to them how she worked, how they worked, and then she said, okay, everybody, like this. So they stood out there in the infield for like 30 seconds, just going like this. Everybody in that group, tell me if I'm wrong, everybody in that group set a PR. Everyone. So they ran the fastest race of their lives. Um, yeah. Attitude. 
so you know what I'm going to have you do. Everybody, stand up. I want you to turn to the person next to you, and I want you to posture up. I want you, I want you to show off a little bit. You have two choices. You can do Wonder Woman, or you can do Superman. Go ahead, and you gotta, you got to hold it for 20 seconds. This is a warm-up, a warm-up for your attitude. Because we're not slaves, we're superheroes. High fives all around, come on. Ooh. Wonder Woman. She's 93, but she's scary. 93 next month. Good job, guys. Okay, now we're warm. The Exodus story. Genesis, Exodus. It's the story of God freeing the Hebrews from, uh, from Egypt. It's an amazing story of drama, intrigue, miracles, and betrayals. The book of Exodus is the first miniseries in recorded history. That's what it is. Uh, it starts with a call. Uh, the Hebrews are enslaved. Uh, Moses, this character, has kind of, uh, well, he screwed up a little bit in his early life, had a very interesting early life, but he ended up murdering somebody, so he sends himself into exile, becomes a shepherd among a foreign people, and then one day God shows up uh, in front of Moses uh, in a burning bush, which is a very interesting device for communication, I think, and he gives Moses a call, and it's really a call to his people who are in slavery. He says in Exodus 3, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them. And you, Moses, are going to uh, do... Uh, do the work for me. That's the call. That, that call, just like the call to Abraham, that call changed world history. There's some drama. Moses is surprised by this. He initially doesn't want to do it, but eventually a plan forms. God explains the plan to Moses, and he begins to execute it. The plan goes like this. God will send Moses, who is in a foreign territory, uh, Midian, probably uh, the area we would consider Arabia today, but he travels back to Egypt. And what he's going to do is that he's going to go to Pharaoh, who is the lord of all Egypt, the king of all Egypt. Remember, societies right now are caste-based societies. There's a king, in this case a king who's worshipped as a god. Everyone else is lower class. You had serfs, you had slaves. Uh, the Hebrews were in the slave class. They weren't, they weren't slaves as you might think what they were. They, they were just they were like the untouchables, right? They had a job to do, and everything about their life was determined by people who had more power. Uh, they made bricks, and they did subsistence farming, and that's about all that they did. Uh, so God uh, sends Moses to Pharaoh, and he's going to say to Pharaoh, uh, let my people go. You need to set these people free. Their lives are going to change which is more revolutionary than it sounds to you and me, because at this point in human history, we're kind of used to revolutions. But uh, for Pharaoh to have some shepherd walk in and says, I'm going to change society, it was just like, like this stuff didn't happen. This is an entire world revolution, because you are who you were born to be. You are how you were born. Nobody ever changed. Nothing ever changed. This was silly. 
Um, but Moses is going to request freedom from Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh's probably not going to like it, God says, so uh, Moses is going to do a bunch of miracles in front of Pharaoh that provokes that provoke Pharaoh to release uh, the Hebrews, and then Moses is going to lead the Hebrews into the promised land that God had given to their ancestor, uh, Abraham. That's the plan. And you're probably familiar with that plan. If for no other reason than you saw the Disney cartoon. Am I right? You're right. But it turns out there's a lot of strategy and a lot of twists in this plan. Uh, and, the, and the first twist or bit of strategy is this, that God uses oppression to kindle true free freedom mentality in his people. Because the thing that makes people want to get free is oppression. The thing that makes you want to change your life is when your life sucks. Go ahead, write that down. It's brilliantly insightful. Uh, but what we don't sometimes realize is that God is using the impression. God works in mysterious ways. So what happens is that the initial request that Moses makes of Pharaoh is actually fairly small. Moses walks into Pharaoh's courts, don't really know how he got there, although he has some experience in Pharaoh's household from his childhood. He walks before Pharaoh, and he doesn't say, hey, free all of the Hebrew slaves. Instead, he says, let my people go into the wilderness for three days in order to worship their, their God, this one true God. You know, like, we want to go on a worship retreat out in the woods? Let us go. But Pharaoh's like, you want to do what? For, for, for whom? You want me to let you go? Out? No, 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 no. That sounds fishy to me. It sounds like you're up to something. No. And in fact, the request offends me because in this world, nothing ever changes, son. Um, so here's what I'm going to do, just because you got all uppity and requested a little time off. Uh, I'm going to reduce the amount of straw that we give you to make bricks. I'm going to make life worse for all of those Hebrews. Now get out of here and don't come back. And the Hebrews have their first freak out moment in this story. Moses has come and he says, hey, good news, God has called me to free you. And the first thing that happens is that their life gets a lot harder. Their life gets a lot worse. So they freak out and they grumble. And this is where we get uh, the scripture that's on the back of your program. We're at Exodus 6 now in the story. This is God speaking to Moses, and he says, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I'm the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. These are all ancestors. And I will give it to you as a possession. I'm the Lord. I'm in charge. God is saying that to them after their straw supply has been cut. Moses reported this promise to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Boom, there it is. That's the theme. God says, I have great plans for you. I have a personal relationship to give you. I have tons of power available for you. And they say, yeah, but life's hard, so screw that. Humanity in a nutshell, right there. What's God contending against? He's not contending against their physical slavery. He's contending against their mindset. 
They have a mindset of powerlessness. Slavery is not a circumstance as much as it is a spirit, right? This is what's going on. Uh, they did not listen because of their discouragement. Discouragement. They have been uncouraged. Another word for courage is faith. They have been unfaithed because of their experience. Then the Lord said to Moses, well, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of, the, of his country. Like, go back to Pharaoh and do it again. But Moses said to the Lord, hey, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Moses has caught the bug. This is early Moses. This is how Moses is still learning to be Moses. And he's like, oh, you guys are all discouraged. I'm just going to breathe that in, and now I'm going to go talk to God, and God's going to tell me what to do to be a person of purpose. He's going to tell me to write down a name on the Easter invite card, but uh, it's not going to work, and, you know, I'm a person of faltering lips. Nobody really listens to me, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, slave mentality. Slave mentality. That's what God is trying to get out of us. And it has always been this story. This is what the Bible is about. God wants to release you into power and purpose, but you're like, I can come up with reasons why not. And I am more committed to those reasons than to the greatness of God and the promises that He makes and the purpose that He has uh, for my life. I mean, that's, that's what we do. Uh, so the real problem is this culture of disempowerment that comes from the cruelty and the fatigue that we have experienced in life. Freedom is complex. It's not enough just to take off shackles. You actually have to become a true human, a true individual. Well, you know the rest of the story. God, you know, eventually gets Moses to go back to Pharaoh. Uh, there's sort of a contest of power. All of these plagues happen. I mean, there's gnats and there's frogs and there's blood and eventually the firstborn dies. Uh, and by the end of it, the Egyptians plead with the Hebrews to leave. Like, enough, enough. This is getting bad for us now. So you can go, and here, let us give you all of our treasure to take with you. Nice having you. Please don't ever return. Uh, and so it's just, it's just hilarious how it works out. It reminds me of the promise that God made to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And we see that worked out for this people. The bonus to the Hebrews is that through the drama and all of the complications, they get great stories to tell. And a big part of the early years is God reminding the Israelites, hey, write this stuff down and tell it to future generations. And this is the beginning of the great Judeo-Christian story tradition, an oral tradition that would become the Bible. Our wealth is so very often in our stories. Stories are what build cultures. Well, no sooner have the Israelites left town than God puts them into another jam. Through Moses' direction, God leads them to the seashore. Their backs are to the sea, and the Egyptians have gotten all uppity again, and they send the army out to crush them. It's like, we let them go, but you know what? Buyer's remorse. We're going to send the army out, and we're going to wipe out those slaves because they're just slaves. And nothing changes in this world. Let's remember that. So we have to crush them under the heel of our boots. And so they're in a bad strategic position. Their backs are to the water. Their front is to the Egyptians. They have a freak-out moment again. You know how that story ends. Parting of the Red Sea. 
uh, the, the Israelites pass across and the sea closes and wipes out a good chunk of the uh, Egyptian army and they get another great story to tell. Another great story to tell. And that's what God tells them about the experience. Make it into a story and remember it forever. And lo and behold, we have, we have a saying at Blue Water, we're in it for the stories. We're in it for the stories. Uh, the best marker of the trajectory of your life is the stories that you have to tell. Go out and get some interesting stories, people. That's how you build culture around you. I just pray for a culture of freedom and power. I pray, pray for a culture of free people. Well, then, you know, the Exodus story continues, and you get story after story of the Hebrews getting into a jam, freaking out, accusing God, accusing Moses, and then God doing some great miracle to deliver them. It happens again and again and again. There's a food crisis. We're going to starve. They say to Moses, oh, we remember the flesh pots of Egypt. You know, we, we remember, you know, back in Egypt, life sucked, but, you know, at least... At least we had spam. <laughs> Flesh pots, that's what I think of. And then God says manna, you know, miraculous food they get, and that becomes a big part of their testimony. They have water crises. Oh, we're, we're, we don't have any water. Moses, why did you bring us out here just to die of thirst? And then God will provide miracles, you know, water from a rock and stuff like that. Another miracle of, of deliverance. Uh, plagues happen, and God sends miraculous healings for the plagues. Snakes and all of that stuff they deal with. Just story after story of these huge challenges that come, and every time the Hebrews freak out. And every time God does some miracle to deliver them. Then ultimately the Israelites have to learn how to fight for themselves. And so uh, God sends enemies against them. Their first big fight is against the Amalekites. And basically, we get to see the Hebrews kind of grow up to become a little tougher. That's the rhythm of the story. There is no faith without the exercise of trust. There is no faith without the exercise of trust. And trust requires a challenge. Trust requires risk. There is no faith unless there is a risk. And so God uses challenges. Are you going to freak out or are you going to believe? Are you going to run or are you going to fight? Sounds a lot like middle school. Um, and that's, that's kind of what we're reading about here. Uh, they have been raised as slaves, and when things get tough, they long for the security of slavery. Does that make sense to you? They long for the security of slavery. They long for the flesh pots of Egypt. Nobody likes spam. In the name of Jesus, nobody likes spam. Give it up, people. There are better things out there. God has a vision for your life that involves you eating vegetables. Here's the thing. The dissatisfaction you know often seems better than the challenge you don't. The dissatisfaction you know often seems better than the challenge you don't. Sure, my life sucks, but it's stable. I, kn I know how to exist in this dissatisfaction. I know, how to, I know how to pull off this sucky life. 
So let's just not rock the boat too much. At least I, at least I can pull it off. Take me out into the wilderness, and who knows what's going to happen. And a big part of the freedom lesson for the Hebrews involves how to walk with God, how to journey with God. Right, the call starts with God saying to them, you will be my people, and I will be your God. So we're going to learn how to do this together. We're going to be a family. And here comes the big innovation in the, in the middle of the story. They're out there in the wilderness, and Moses leads the people to Mount Sinai. And God descends on Sinai in a big cloud. There's just a terrible presence there with cloud and, and lightning. It's described as, as, a, as a terrible experience. The, uh, the Israelites get kind of scared. They're in the proximity of like the physical presence of God. And in Exodus 20, 20, uh, Moses has to say to them, do not be afraid. God's come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. Like you need to know just how awesome God is and, and when, you, when you need a little fear to sober up, remember what the mountain looks like right now. Remember how big this dude is, you know? The first lesson we learn as children, the first discipline we learn as children is listen to mom and dad. You know, dad can be a little bit scary. And if kids don't learn that, they, they tend not to learn obedience. It's just the way it is. Can I get a big amen from the parents? You know, and here the people of God are just in their infancy. So lesson number one, listen to dad. Dad is big. Dad is big. So understand this. Uh, God is awesome. He, he doesn't display that so that you might be cowards. He displays that so you might learn to be faithful. You might learn some respect. And I think that sort of divides the world into two different categories even today. There are people who think God is scary and nasty, and there are people who think that God is scary and helpful. Um, the second thing that happens on Mount Sinai, of course, is that God uh, begins to give his people some rules. That's where the Ten Commandments come from. Uh, Moses goes up on Sinai, stays a whole heck of a lot, of, spends a lot of time on there. Uh, God writes down some rules, carves them into some stone tablets, as it turns out, and Moses carries the tablets down in order to give the first basic rules to the people to kind of get them going in this new life of obedience and, and discipline that they need. Everyone needs a little discipline to grow up. And this is where it begins for the people of God. The first go-around didn't go very well because Moses is up on the mountain getting the laws and he comes down and it turns out that the people have freaked out, as they usually do. It's like, Moses is gone. We don't really like being so close to God. Uh, and so, hey, Aaron, priest guy, make a golden calf for us uh, so that we can worship the calf. And what they were doing, they said, that God is a little wild and out of control. Can you make us a God that's a little more convenient? Can you make us a God that, you know, fits into our lifestyle a little more? A God that we can manage, a God that we can have. We want, we want, we want a God idea. We want a God tradition, you know. We want a God where we know where he is and we can get away from him if we have to. That's, that's the kind of God that we want. And so Aaron, 
uh, he, he knuckles under and he provides that God. Moses brings down uh, the first uh, tablets with the rules on it, and he's like, oh, you have got to be kidding me. And, you know, that ends in a nasty way. Uh, they end up melting down the calf, grinding it into gold dust, and making all the Israelites drink it, um, which yeah, it's kind of cool when you think about it. Um, and, but then, you know, there's like a lot of infighting and stuff like that. Eventually, though, uh, the process works, and the people get the, the, the first rules of what would become a rather robust body of rules. Um, huge question. Huge question. What are the rules for? What is the law for? I mean, these laws would become famous in the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me. No carbon images. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother that it might go well with you in the land that the Lord has given you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not, do not steal. Don't lie about people and do not covet. Don't envy. Ten fingers. So they're very easy to remember. Basic boot camp. Boot camp rules. Discipline. What's that for? Why is God doing it this way? Bible from 30,000 feet, right? Well, you have to understand the context in which this went down. God is trying to turn slave-minded people into free people. And it turns out that to become free people, what humans need is internal strength and challenge. You know, they need some standards uh, to test themselves against and to keep them uh, on what would come to be called the straight and narrow. It comes in a very well-characterized context. The Hebrews are free, but they're not free. They keep drifting into freak-out, right? They keep drifting into, well, we want God who's convenient, not a God who's adventurous and awesome. And that's, that's what the law is for. Jesus would ultimately say, hey, the Sabbath law was invented for you. You weren't invented for the Sabbath law. You have to realize that the rules God gives are for your own good. They have a developmental purpose. And in some of the early laws, I think that developmental purpose is, is really obvious. I mean, don't murder, don't steal, don't envy what your neighbor has. Those are all really great rules for holding society together in a helpful, positive culture, right? Um, some of them uh, are obvious, uh, obviously developmental when you think about it. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You have to remember to rest. You have to remember to not be anxious from time to time. Otherwise, you're going to get really unhealthy. You know, Jesus understood that. Honor your parents so that it might go well with you in the land the Lord has given you. Uh, what that means is not necessarily doing everything that your parents say for your whole life, but that, you know, there's a tendency of the younger generation to reject entirely the older generation. Uh, sometimes younger people have to reject the bad things that mom and dad pass down to them, but in doing that, they often also reject the good things. And remember, God is trying to develop a culture of faith, so we can't go about reinventing that culture every generation. Or we'll get stuck. We'll end up juvenile for all of human history. That's what God is saying, uh, etc. No other gods or images. Remember, there's only one God. Don't drift back into that multiple God, polytheistic, worship your ancestors mindset. Remember the truth. 
you have to have a truth culture. Anyway, if you can't keep the basic rules, you will lose track of God. You'll fear His presence. One nice feature of rules is that we know how we should be living so that when God shows up, we don't wonder if we've been living well. More than anything, they're designed to help keep us from becoming slaves again. Summary. Discipline leads to freedom. We need discipline to be free people. I always think of like a ballet dancer. Um, you know, you see a, a, like a world-class dancer on stage and he or she just looks like they're floating, right? It's like, like this feather on the wind. And then you stop and you think about all the discipline that has gone into that freedom. But I think that dancer is, is much more free with his or her body than I am with mine. Discipline leads to freedom, right? Huh. You got to grow up, and that takes some hard work. There would eventually be, by one estimation, 613 laws, routines, and rituals in the Old Testament. But I think they all basically have the same purpose. Uh, categorically, they're about staying pure, they're about the ability to be different than the world around you, and they're about caring for the poor and the most vulnerable in society. Almost all of the laws are about one of those three things. The point, though, is to grow up. All right, it's really muggy in here, it's really humid. So everybody breathe, fan the person next to you. We have a three-minute closing now. We are learning the Bible in its arc, so I want you to think of how the story started, the Garden of Eden story uh, where we began. The problem was, you know, God's presence. He was with there with our ancestors in some sort of idyllic situation. He gave them one rule, don't eat fruit from that tree. And they distrusted the nature of God and broke the rule. Uh, what's happening here is that God is building us up again for round two. He gives us some rules, and He reveals His nature to us in a way that can be trusted. Uh, the Bible is telling us stories about what it takes to solve our trust problem. The original problem was that we believe God exists, but we didn't trust Him to be good. Everything else that follows in the Bible is about how God builds up a people so that they can trust Him to be good, and things can be healthy again. Things can be creative and purposeful. With the story of Abraham, we learn that trust requires a journey. It requires a challenge, it requires a risk, and it requires a mission, a purpose. You have to live a life of purpose or you're really not living a life of trust. In the early stories of the Bible, the story of the Hebrews, we see the same thing applied but to an entire society. God's not just trying to develop an individual of trust, He's trying to develop a people of trust, and that's all about setting them free from slavery and slave mentality. It involves a journey as well. It involves an exodus. It involves getting out of one thing and finding purpose. It might involve going through periods of oppression. It will certainly involve overcoming challenges, and it will involve some rules and some discipline because without discipline, nobody grows up. It's designed to prevent a drift back into slave thinking, and slave thinking comes upon us quickly if we're not careful. God is teaching His people how that works. 
Hey, you know what can happen? You'd be going along, you'd be going great, and then you just start to envy your neighbor's life a little bit. And but pretty soon you're going to be a slave again if you're not careful. I see that coming. Let me tell you. Hey, I'll make it a rule. It's number 10. Do not covet what your neighbor has. There. Now you know. You know what would happen? You'll be living freely. You'll be believing. You'll be on a mission. But you will forget to rest. You'll forget to practice anxiety-free life. You'll get exhausted, and exhaustion will make you fearful. You'll become a coward. You won't trust. You'll start shirking challenges instead of embracing them and growing through them. So, so here's a rule. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. There, I've said it. Now, if you trust me, that will help keep you free. That's what's going on right now. God is growing up a people. I don't think they yet in the story understand God very well, but they're beginning to, right? This is when the people of God are about five or six years old. They can only understand so much about their parent. That's what we see. The theme is that we have to fight to develop trust. This is a story about the fight for trust and freedom. And the story goes on. You get the wandering through the desert. The reason the Hebrews had to wander through the desert is because they were afraid of giants. They were afraid. They were afraid. Nothing stunts you like fear. And the conquest of the promised land is eventually the Hebrews learn how to fight, how to stick up for themselves with God's help. Um, you get the up and down period of the judges as Hebrews drift away from God. They drift usually into polytheism and really sick spiritual practice. God drags them back. They had good kings. They had bad kings. All the wars of oppression involved in that part of the Bible. Basically, God is crying out to humanity and saying, can you stick with me or not? Can you trust me or not? It's the story of the Bible. So far in the story, God, uh, the people, humans, have learned a couple things about God. One, they've learned that He's interested. They've learned that He shows up and that He's active. And they've learned that He's awesome, that He has standards. And that's about all they've learned so far. And so we'll leave the story there for today. Maybe some of you are stuck at that point in the story. It's like, well, I think there is a God. His standards make me uncomfortable. Maybe you need to understand what the purpose of the standards are. Maybe you need to understand that what God's trying to do is to turn you into a free individual who's not dominated by your circumstances, an individual who can dominate their circumstances, an individual who can stand and face life and change the world if necessary. That's often an early lesson in our journey with the Lord. Maybe you're afraid of what coming into the presence of God will do to you, what you'll have to give up. Maybe you just like it if God were a little more convenient. We all go through that stage. have been going through that stage for 3,000 years. <laughs> and maybe you need to consider what the point is. Maybe you need to consider that your life has a purpose and that more than anything, God wants, you to, wants to release you into that purpose. There's a great passage at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which is the summary statement of the whole Exodus and Moses' life. Moses stands in front of the people, and he speaks for God, and he says, Look, I have put before you today life and death. Choose life. Deuteronomy 30. 
read the whole chapter sometime. We're out of time or I do it today. I've set before you as best I can life and death. As best I can, I have described to you the path that leads to death and how you might get snared and taken out. And as best I can, I've described to you the path of trust that will lead you to purpose, adventure, and freedom. Please choose the life path. And if you do, the whole world will be blessed because of you. If you do, your life won't be wasted. You won't go through life experiencing the pain of powerlessness. Please choose life.